Welcome to Looks Like New on KGNU's It's the Economy. I'm Bailey Troutman. This is a show that asks old questions about new technology, even addressing questions that should have been asked a long time ago. We join you on the fourth Thursday of every month on the radio, or you can listen online as a podcast. Looks Like New is a production of the Media Enterprise Design Lab at CU Boulder. If you've spent some time using the internet, you likely have experienced advertising that goes back to things you previously searched for or maybe liked on social media. Perhaps you've noticed on social media platforms that you have recommended friends, a tailored explore page, or other targeted advertisements from searches or posts that you've interacted with. Platforms like YouTube or TikTok might even fill your feed with things they think that you'll like. Perhaps you've been reading headlines or seeing articles talking about algorithms or algorithmic injustice. Past episodes of this show have really explored some of the things going on in Black Twitter. We've had hashtag conversations, data collection and privacy implications, and policy um, that might be changing in the coming years. But what exactly are algorithms? Why do they matter? Today, we're going to have a conversation with a researcher who studies algorithms and machine learning, asking the question, can algorithms be fair? Jesse J. Smith, or Jess, is a PhD student at the University of Colorado Boulder in information science, researching machine learning and AI ethics with an emphasis on algorithmic fairness and transparency. Jess previously interned for FATE, which is the Fairness, Accountability, Transparency, and Ethics and AI team at Microsoft Research. She's currently working on building tools to promote algorithmic literacy, trust, and agency in multi-stakeholder systems, especially when values come into conflict with one another. Jess is about to start an internship with Apple, working on robustness analysis for machine learning, and does consulting work on incorporating ethics like fairness into existing machine learning systems and big tech companies. She also hosts a podcast, the Radical AI Podcast, where she interviews experts on the most pressing topics in AI ethics while building a movement to address the societal issues embedded in AI systems. Thank you so much for being here today, Jess. We're so excited to have this conversation with you today. Thank you so much for having me. And I feel a little bit bummed that I forgot to bring my podcasting equipment with me. So no fancy mic today. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a worry at all. We can hear you loud and clear. <laughs> so to kind of, you know, start from the beginning, um, how did you realize that you wanted to research algorithms and machine learning and kind of what was your journey like and how did that kind of unfold for you? Yeah, absolutely. So um Geez, my story probably starts from when I was a kid, as most people's stories do. <laughs> and I, I think one of my earliest memories of thinking about algorithms and their implications on society and just sort of this like machine learning AI space was when I was watching iRobot as a kid. That was one of the first like Terminator-esque movies I ever watched where you sort of leave the movie with this feeling of like dread and impending doom. And I had this spark lit in the back of my head that was like, 
this seems like something that's going to be important in your life. This feels like it could be an interesting career path if this is something that you feel passionately about. So um, I sort of let that simmer for a few years. And I, I was always interested in STEM as a kid. So I ended up going into computer science in college. Uh, basically knowing nothing. So I was not one of those um, like seventh grade nerds in the basement coding on weekends and teaching myself how to use Unix on my machine. That was my older brother. <laughs> that was not me. I <laughs> I was very um, illiterate in, in computer science when I went to college, but I was interested in it. I was intrigued by it. And um, I think it was like my second or third year of college when I read this blog by Tim Urban, it's called, I think the entire blog is called Wait But Why, but there was this two-part series called The Artificial Intelligence Revolution. And um, it basically is like this, if you read it all the way through, it'll take several hours, but it was sort of like this um, eye-opening moment for me where I, I felt that same like feeling of doom and dread enter my body where I was sort of thinking like, oh my gosh, are we all doomed as a society to be killed by robots or ran by robots and the machine is going to take over the universe? Because this, this blog was definitely centered on that idea, but it was like presented in a very scientific way. So it sort of was like this doom and gloom. This is the inevitable future um, scenario that was laid out for us. And uh, yeah, I was definitely a little bit, um, I don't want to say like traumatized, but I was a little bit traumatized by reading this. And I, I think I just sort of like sat for the next day, like brainstorming what I could do with this information. And uh, it was the next semester in college when I decided to enroll in my first data science class and see what this whole like machine learning AI hype was about. And uh, it was at the same time that I took this machine learning class that I was taking a computer ethics class. And that's when I started to really ask a lot of questions about what machine learning actually is, how it impacts our society, how we might unintentionally discriminate or be unfair with machine learning, how it's potentially taking over our digital lives, the implications of this technology and yeah, the, the rest is definitely history and, and I'm sure we'll get into the rest, but that was sort of like the beginning of my windy path here. <laughs> no, I love that so much because I think it resonates for me, at least as someone who like grew up with the similar movies where they were all like very deterministic, like this is the inevitable future that we have waiting for us because, you know, mm. the algorithms are just unstoppable. They're going to take over. There's nothing we can do about that, you know? And I, I think that that's really cool that it kind of inspired you almost to think, well, like, wait, is that actually the case? Like, do we have to just stand by and let this happen, you know, and like, even if that doesn't happen, but like, do we have to stand by and watch it, you know, burn essentially? So um, I, I, I love that that's kind of how you, you've arrived here. Um, and I do want to like ask a follow-up kind of, cause I, I think it's important as we start this conversation, like let's set up some great definitions, you know, let's define a few things. So algorithms, super buzzword right now. Like I feel like everybody's talking about it. I say everybody, but you know, everybody's talking about <laughs> algorithms, right? And, um, what exactly does that word mean? Like what are algorithms? Like what do they actually do? Just so we can kind of clarify that before we move forward. 
Yes. Thank you for asking this question. This is so important. I feel like algorithms, machine learning, AI, big data, the cloud, like all these buzzwords are just such a, they're a a huge part of our language today and people use them all the time interchangeably. And they really are drastically different things and they mean drastically different things depending on the context that they're used in. So um, this is important. <laughs> and it's it's actually unfortunate because I feel like a lot of people who are in tech try to be a little bit gatekeepy with these terms. And it's almost like there's this intentional confusion that they're trying to cause amongst people who don't know how to formally code or haven't like been formally trained in computer science. And that, that's unfortunate because I feel like that was me when I was um, starting off with my computer science journey. I felt like I was definitely left out of the conversation because I didn't understand what a lot of this stuff meant and nobody was really teaching it to me at a low level like they were talking to a five-year-old. And these concepts can be taught to five-year-olds. Like actually children are some of the best coders that I've met before. They pick it up very naturally. Um, So all that is to say is a very long preface to what, what actually is an algorithm. At a very low level, an algorithm is just a set of rules. And that's why it is actually relatively simple when you put it into context of computing systems, because it is in English language. It's basically a list of instructions telling the machine what to do in a given context. So um, there's algorithms that are really uh, simple, like the algorithm that unlocks your phone, which is basically like... Um, do not open this phone unless you are given a specific sequence of numbers or a specific fingerprint. And then there's algorithms that are much, much more complex. Like, can we predict the next word that this person is going to say in their Gmail? And um, all of those different, every everything in between both of those sides from simple to complex all runs on instructions that humans, developers, coders, computer scientists, data scientists, they are the ones who decide that set of instructions. And a machine is not this like Terminator machine. A computer is not like this, this robot that wants to like kill the world. It literally just does what it's told. So the algorithm tells the computer what to do and it does what it's told. And there's a lot more nuance than that, which we'll get into, I'm sure, this conversation too. But at a very high level, algorithms are pretty simple, actually. Yeah. I love that. No, <laughs> I think it's – I think it, yeah, because like, I love also what you said about, you know, we're throwing these words around and it does feel like kind of exclusive. Like people who are talking about them are the people that are like, I have all this training, I have all this experience. And then you have a set of people who are using them in daily life maybe not using them properly, maybe not fully understanding like what it is that they're talking about, which I think just kind of will reinforce the things we're going to dive into later. But again, it's like super important. I love that you highlighted like it's actually simple. Like kids can <laughs> learn this. We can learn this. You know, it, it doesn't have to be this like daunting word, you know. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. um, yeah. And it Also, I'm kind of thinking too about, I know you've explained, you know, the the algorithm for opening your phone or the the predictive text, but I'm also wondering too, on social media platforms, for example, you know, how are we seeing algorithms function and like what rules are they kind of, I don't know, telling the machine, I guess, um, Mm. on, on these platforms? Yes. Yeah. This is, this is a good question because I, I feel like, 
of all the algorithms that we as modern humans encounter, the ones that are on social media are probably the ones that we encounter most commonly because I feel like if we were to divide our digital lives up in like a pie chart, the vast majority of our time would probably be on some sort of social platform of some kind. That seems to be like the the um, the commons that we've created digitally is like social media. So um, these are also really dependent on the context, how the algorithm works, that is. And you're going to have a wide range of algorithms from very simple, like I was saying earlier, to very complex. And very simple algorithms are going to be um, lists of instructions that don't really change even given a different user or a different context. So an example, like a really simple example of this would be if you're on Facebook and you are reacting to a post, there is an algorithm that determines what your screen looks like as you react to that post. So if you were to like hover over the react button, then the algorithm might look something like if the user hovers over this reaction, expand the box of emojis. If they hover over a specific reaction emoji, make that emoji bigger. If they click it, replace the like emoji with that emoji and color it in. So it's just like a very simple list of instructions, like if this, do this, otherwise, do this. And that's like, um, it's called a conditional statement in computer science if we want to get into the jargon, which I, I don't think we do. But just in case anybody's curious out there, that's like a very simple um, type of algorithm that you would learn in an intro to computer science class, for example. Um, the more complex algorithms that we see much more frequently recently is machine learning algorithms. And those are all over social media, they seem to be driving our digital world <laughs> recently. And those are much, much more complex because even though at a high level, they are still just lists of instructions from a human to a computer, there's so much more granularity in between the human and the computer that there's actually, um, there's a lot of scenarios where the instructions are no longer interpretable to a human. The computer sort of takes over the instructions. And it doesn't, it's still not like Terminator scenario where the computer's saying like, I know what's best for you. I'm going to make my own decisions. Like there's no meaning that the computer is deriving from our instructions. But it does get really complex when you're dealing with really, really large amounts of data because we as humans can only, um, we can only, process so much data at once and we can only interpret so much data at once. And so our instructions can't really be specific to one specific user. Like I couldn't really give one set of instructions for every single of the billions of users of Facebook that would just require like billions of computer scientists, right? So the computer scientist makes this really generalizable algorithm and feeds that to the computer. And then the computer makes it personalized and specific to the users that it is interacting with. And that is what gives us what's called like a personalized 
algorithm. And so this is what we interact with all the time on YouTube, whether it's like personalized video recommendations or Spotify, whether it's personalized um, music playlists that are coming up or Facebook, whether it's our personalized um, feed of posts that we see when we log on. It's sort of like the the, the new world that we exist in, everything's like personalized to us. And those are definitely like more on the complex side of algorithms, but you can, it is still possible to understand how they work. It just takes quite a few years to get there. <laughs> You're listening to Looks Like New, a show that asks old questions about new tech. Stick with us, we'll be back soon. Welcome back to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio. We're having a conversation with Jess Smith about fairness and algorithms. Absolutely. And, you know, I think too, we've on the show, like we've talked about, you know, different ways like data collections happening and privacy and policy and like all of this stuff, you know, and I've had such good conversations. And I just think something that's kind of intriguing to me about, you know, your work and your background specifically is your, you know, your passion for fairness. And so I wanted to kind of ask, you know, now that we know kind of how these things are working, the generalizability, right, the rules, all of that, um, when you're thinking about things like fairness, what does that actually mean? And how could an algorithm, for example, be fair? Yes. Okay. So... Where do I begin with this? This is a big, big topic. We got a lot to discuss. <laughs> um, so, okay, let's start. Let's remove technology from, from this equation for a second. And let's just discuss what does it mean for something to be fair in the first place? Because fairness is this like philosophical concept that people have debated for millennia for a reason, because it's very, very complicated. And it's basically just as complex as humans are, <laughs> if not more. So um, the, the basic high level idea of fairness is you want to treat people the way that they deserve to be treated with like an asterisk, a big asterisk there, because this is like very dependent on the context, right? So um, there's a lot of different interpretations for how we can treat people um, the way that they deserve. And so this is really dependent on like personally what your values are, like how you what you think people deserve. This is also dependent on um, your community's values. A lot of different cultures geographically will think um, that one thing is fair and another culture geographically on the other side of the world may think that that same thing is wildly unfair. And it's also dependent on the context right? Like some people might say that stealing from a grocery store is unethical, but if that person is starving and about to die and in a dire situation, maybe it is ethical. And so the same is true with fairness, right? Like something might be really unfair in one scenario, but is actually okay and is fair in a different scenario. So that is like, totally removed from tech, just the concept of fairness is something that has probably dozens of definitions, if not more. And there is no agreed, unified, single definition of fairness that 
um, everybody in the world agrees on. And even like personally for me, I feel like my definition of what fairness is depends on the situation, the day, maybe even the time of day. Maybe I'm just having a bad day and I think everything's unfair, right? So like it really, it just, it depends. And uh, that's why this is really fascinating when you apply it to algorithms and technology, because like I was saying before, algorithms are like inputs and outputs, a list of rules that's telling the computer what to do. And that's fine if the computer is um, turning on your lights. There's not really like a huge issue of fairness, right? Like maybe it doesn't turn on your lights when you want it to. And that's a little upsetting and that's bad user experience, but there's not really a that much harm, unless maybe you like really needed the lights on for some reason. I don't know. Can't think of a scenario where that would happen, but maybe that that's like the case <laughs> sometimes. But when when algorithms do actually need to be concerned about fairness, is when the algorithm is making a decision that could impact humans in a potentially negative or positive way. So there's a lot of algorithms in the past decade, basically that have been employed in um, in scenarios where technology has never really been used before. So um, examples of some of the higher stakes scenarios is in banking. If um, people are applying to get a loan, sometimes, a lot of the times, algorithms will be used to determine whether or not that person deserves to be denied or granted a loan. And um, another example is for like hiring. A lot of people are experiencing this now when you send in your application, there's algorithms that filter out applications that they think are just not even worth looking at. And then it, it hands the stack that it thinks is worthy to the actual humans to look at. And, um, oh, geez, there's, there's so many. There's algorithms being used in education for people getting accepted to schools. There's a lot of these like higher stakes um, scenarios where it's not necessarily life or death quite yet, but it these algorithms are making decisions that have the potential to drastically impact someone's life. And so in those scenarios, it's really important for us to ask, is the algorithm treating these people fairly? In the same way that I would hope we would ask a human who was doing the same job, is this human treating these people fairly with the decisions that they're making? So um, yes, this is like the context of fairness in algorithms when, when it's useful, when it's important, when we're thinking about fairness concerns. And um, going back to your original question, what does it mean for an algorithm to be fair? Uh, I'm going to basically say the same answer that I said before, which is that it's so context dependent, right? So like there's there's certain algorithms that we can create. There's interventions on the algorithms that we can do where it's basically us saying, let's make sure that this algorithm treats as many people good as possible or gives as many people a good outcome as possible. Or there's some algorithms that say, let's make sure that our rates for treating people good and giving people a good outcome is the same for both men and women, because we want to make sure there's no discrepancies. Or it's the same for people who are older than 50 years old and the same for people who are younger than 50 years old. And then there's like more nuanced definitions where it's saying that this is sort of like what you see with like affirmative action, where you can say like, oh, well, certain groups of users are inherently um, going to be not necessarily worse off, but they will be at a disadvantage 
from the start because of societal discrimination and centuries of discrimination, racism, sexism, you name it. And so we want to intervene on the algorithm and actually maybe take away from some of the people who might be deserving, but who have been given more opportunity and give those opportunities to people who are just as deserving or maybe a little less deserving, but who haven't been given those opportunities before. So there's there's a lot of different ways to approach what it means for something to be fair and what it means for an algorithm to be fair and then how to intervene on the algorithm to try to make it as fair as possible. So that's sort of like the the high level how this how this works in a nutshell. Um, but what I like to uh, sort of like preach to people and what I, I feel like I'm like constantly saying whenever I'm introducing this topic is that uh, because fairness is such a sticky subject and because we don't agree on what it means for something to be fair as like a global human society, even like individually, since we don't agree on this concept, um, you can, it is not possible to create an algorithm that is fair. Like you cannot, it's not just a box that you check and say, okay, my algorithm is now fair. It's, it's much more complex than that. You could say like my algorithm is performing seemingly fairly under these specific constraints based off of the definition that we have decided in this given context with the data that we have, but it's not like an end all be all. You can just check the box and you're good to go and your system's ethical. It's, it's very complex. And hopefully I haven't confused you with this introduction. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. I'm actually, I was thinking about it because I think it's really um, important to highlight this, you know, kind of complexity. The, like we know that these are complex, you know, systems and we know like our technology is complicated and, you know, not all of us understand even like coding and just basic like functionality, right? Besides what we can use and like the utility of of our devices. But I'm kind of struck by this idea that it's actually, it's not possible, right? It's not possible for someone to say like, we've done it. We've checked the box. It is now fair. Like Apple can't go around and be like, we're totally fair. Check mark. Like, you know, like <laughs> how I'm kind of thinking about just like how maybe even in your background experience with different companies, but like how do companies knowing this, you know, how do they kind of approach or hope to approach fairness, you know, from a mm. corporate standpoint, especially because these are global audiences that we're reaching now. And like you were saying earlier, everybody has a different, you know, idea of what fair looks like. And so why pursue it at all, maybe? Yes, this is a really great question. And this is something that I've encountered before when I've worked with tech companies, um, whether I'm like consulting or interning for them. I, I'm always curious how people on the inside think about fairness and it's interesting because at an individual level, computer scientists and data scientists are not bad people. Like they want to make technologies that are good and they don't want to wreak havoc on the world. But um, sometimes they are um, like beholden to the large tech giant that they work for. And it's not really up to them whether or not they make a model or release like a machine learning algorithm that is causing harm or not. They just sort of have to do what they're told. And um, the unfortunate reality is that large tech companies benefit from this gatekeeping that I was talking about before. And there's actually this job that I learned about last year that exists in Congress for um, certain people in big tech who get hired by companies like Facebook, for example, where um, people are 
paid to be like sort of like a tech lobbyist, but not to lobby for like the good of tech. It's they they basically are paid to try to confuse congressmen and women and try to confuse um like people in the legal political system so that they make these algorithms and these technologies seem more complex than they actually are. And they use these big buzzwords and they use as much jargon as possible. And they try to basically keep people out so that this stuff can't be regulated or understood unless you are like a computer scientist or unless you've been working on the inside at these big tech companies for a while. And I think that this kind of... Um, culture that big tech has created where this gatekeeping exists has benefited them from keeping this information from users. And so a lot of users don't understand what an algorithm is, for example, or how these algorithms work and how they influence them and how their data is being used maybe against them in certain scenarios. And when it comes to incorporating fairness into algorithms, um, it doesn't really matter what fairness definition they choose if the user is unaware that fairness is even an issue in the first place, or if the user is unaware of how fairness metrics and interventions might change an algorithm that they don't even understand in the first place. So it's sort of, it's really, really complex and complicated on the inside, even for like the data scientists and the engineers and the people who are working on these algorithms. A lot of them don't even really understand how to incorporate fairness yet because this is such a new topic. That's uh, it's I mean, it's been around for the last decade or so, but I haven't really seen it infiltrate big tech until the last like five years or so. And a lot of people are still playing catch up on the inside which means that people, for people on the outside who aren't even really aware of these topics, they're not even given an opportunity to learn about this stuff because it's just, it's hidden underneath so many layers of um, like convolution and sometimes even like intentional hiding from the inside out. Because I mean, if a company like, I'm just going to keep using Facebook because I feel like I keep trashing on them. So I might as well just use them as like the punching bag for this, for this interview. Uh, but let's say like Facebook did decide to intervene on one of their algorithms that they deemed to be unfair by their own metrics. They are probably not very likely to let users know first that the algorithm is unfair because they don't want users, these users are blissfully ignorant, right? And they don't want users to all of a sudden now have fuel to be like, hey, you're treating us unfairly because you told us you were treating us unfairly when before they were being treated unfairly and they just didn't even realize it. And then let's say Facebook intervenes and tries to make up for it and says, no, but hey, look, we're doing all these things with fairness. It's great. We're trying to make this better for you. Now they're open to scrutiny. And now the world can look at them and criticize their approach. And like I said before, nobody's, you're never going to have a fairness solution that is good for everybody where everybody's happy with it. So they're definitely going to have certain groups of people or maybe large groups of people that are unhappy with their approach. And so big companies don't really have a whole lot of incentive to be transparent about this stuff because it it puts them underneath a magnifying glass and gives them opportunities to be scrutinized even more than they already are. So yeah, it's definitely, it's a, it's a sticky subject right now. And this is why a lot of big tech companies aren't being transparent about what they're doing for those who even are interested in doing fairness interventions right now, which is 
not that many yet. There's still, I, I could probably count on my fingers how many big tech companies are actually making like big intentional efforts to incorporate fairness into their systems. <laughs> mm, yeah, I just, I think you've raised such good points about, you know, not only the complexity, right, of fairness itself, but also why perhaps we don't have as much transparency right now coming out of these companies. Like, I feel like there's maybe becoming like a move towards that, right? Like people are starting to maybe kind of get interested or like at least aware that, hey, these platforms, how do they work? You know, how is this working? Like, why is it working this way? Or I'm starting to notice trends or I'm starting to pick up on some things that I didn't notice before. And I'm wondering too, just like moving forward, how that's going to shape things, which I think we'll get into that later on. Um, but I did want to come back to something though that you you mentioned about like the blissful ignorance, right? The mm -hmm. the users who are just kind of just unaware going about their day, sharing the photo of their dog, you know, whatever at lunchtime, like it's, that's kind of what's going on. And <laughs> it brings me to this other thing that I was, again, struck by with your, with your background, which is your other passion about, you know, algorithmic literacy. And I'm wondering about, you know, not only what does that mean, but also why does it motivate you so much? And how is it kind of connected to maybe fairness or all the things you've been kind of already talking about so far? Yes. So algorithmic literacy is a term that I had not heard until about a year or two ago, but I, I wish that it was a more common term because I feel like this is so important in the modern day. Um, at, at a high level, algorithmic literacy is a basic understanding of what algorithms are, how they work, and how they might impact you as a user that um, interacts with them. And so um, algorithmic literacy is something that maybe was less important back in the 90s when um, people were just starting to use the internet at like a, a very um, large scale. But nowadays, algorithmic literacy is super important, not only for people who find themselves online frequently, but even for like children, for example. Um, there's a lot of, you know, there's training as a child at least I, I think in most schools, children are kind of taught like media literacy and like regular literacy, how to read and write, um, because these are useful skills to have to um, exist in society today, in modern society. And I'm hoping that algorithmic literacy is something that children will start to be taught at a young age because um, it's important for children to know maybe they're handed an iPhone at the age of five they might have no idea that if they click accept to the terms and conditions on certain websites, they're accepting to give all of their data away for the next 10 years. Or maybe they don't know that um, if they are searching something on Google, that Google search is personalized, um, which actually this is this was one of the biggest aha moments for me and one of the biggest surprises that I realized in the last few years is that Google search is personalized. So everybody, like you can be searching the same thing as somebody else across the world and you'll get drastically different Google search results, but everybody thinks that they're just like logging on to this same like library system in the, the like digital universe and that we're all getting the same results when it's like drastically targeting us based on who it thinks we are and what it thinks what the algorithm thinks we need 
And so that is important knowledge for us to know as like content consumers and as um, just digital consumers, digital users. And, and so this is, I think algorithmic literacy is like one of the cruxes of our generation and one of the one of the most important things for us to start building in our society to not be ran by these algorithms, but to have a little bit more agency in our digital lives. So that, that it's something that I'm, I'm definitely very passionate about. And it, it really goes hand in hand with a lot of this fairness work that I've been doing. Um, which I, I'm sure we'll probably get into a little bit more too, but that's algorithmic literacy at its roots. <laughs> yeah. And um, it, it was interesting for me because like I didn't really even encounter the term like media literacy until I was an undergrad. And mm. I was just like shocked because I, I didn't know. I remember reading the book. It was The Filter Bubble by Eli Pariser. And that was the first time I realized like, oh, the internet's like tailored, like my search, like you were saying with Google, that's tailored to me. Like what? You know? <laughs> and so I also agree with you. I think that, you know, children, young adults, especially like as they're kind of maturing and they're growing as these, you know, technologies are definitely part of their lives. That's super important. And I also think too, just like helping people understand, you know, of all age ranges, right? Like it's so important for everyone um, because I think even going back to what you were saying about, you know, companies kind of relying on this blissful ignorance maybe like, oh, you can't really hold us accountable if you don't know what we're doing. Mm -hmm. um, that kind of mentality I think is so pervasive in tech spaces. It's like, well, you don't know. You don't code. How can you have an opinion or like hold us accountable for anything, right? And we're seeing this like unfold in real time, like right now. So I really love that that's one of your passions. And um, I think it's it's also something that's just super important. So hopefully this conversation even will help, you know, inspire people to to dig a little deeper even into their daily lives. Um, <laughs> and I, I was thinking too just about, you know, Throughout your career, have you kind of noticed some examples maybe? I know you gave some earlier about unfair hiring practices or educational opportunities. Um, but have you have you noticed other moments where you've seen like what unfairness actually manifests as within, you know, programming spaces or even pop culture references more broadly? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, the, the scary thing is the examples that I can think of are ones that, um, we've probably both encountered and anybody who's watching or listening to this has potentially encountered themselves. And, um, that just goes to show that it's, this is stuff that hits close to home. Like it's this, these unfair algorithms exist in the palm of our hands every day. This isn't something that's like, this is no longer Terminator exists in the far off future in this dystopia. Like this is real life. And sometimes these unfair algorithms don't seem like they are making a big impact, but, um, the reality is that they actually, they really can, they can make a, a really big impact on somebody's lives. And the first example that comes to my mind is um, with TikTok, which it's ironic because I, I feel like TikTok people will be like, what, how could somebody be treated unfairly on TikTok? It's like a music video streaming platform where um, you have like short videos of, I don't know, random content that's like recommended to you. How could somebody be treated unfairly? Well, for content creators on a lot of these platforms that are built off of these like recommendation algorithms and systems, there is actually a lot of concerns for unfairness for the ways that their content is being recommended to others. 
And the reason why TikTok came to my mind is because um, a few, I think it was in 2018, maybe, actually, no, it might've even been as recent as 2020. Um, there was a lot of people as people were beginning to flood TikTok at the beginning of COVID when there was like that big surge of people in their like 20s and 30s all of a sudden taking over this app. Um, they, a lot of people started to realize that their content was not being recommended to um, people if they had, if they were using certain hashtags or if they presented themselves in a certain way. And there was actually a really big scandal that um, was brought to light by a lot of like LGBTQIA plus creators and people who thought that their content was being suppressed because they identified as queer and because they were using these hashtags. And so um, it seemed like the algorithm was virtue signaling that they were not okay with this content by suppressing it and by not letting as many people see it. And the same has happened to a lot of other content creators, like um, a lot of people who are black content creators were saying that their content was being suppressed. And some people who um, are like, I don't even know how to really describe this, but um, like people who, who, who self-identified as not presenting in like a stereotypically societally beautiful way were saying that their content was being suppressed even when they were posting the same exact video as somebody else who like they thought the algorithm may be deemed as more beautiful than them. So there was a lot of tension amongst the content creators of TikTok that they were very upset with the algorithm because it seemed like they were being treated unfairly for really awful reasons. And there was no way for them to know. There was no way for them to really like audit the algorithm in a, a precise way. And there was no way for them to fix it. They had no agency in the matter. So um, yeah, it, it, that's definitely like... I, I, somewhat simple, but also like weirdly complex and intense example of algorithmic unfairness. <laughs> and it's it's actually a really fascinating example too, because I feel like it's one of the first times that I've seen these collective efforts for individual personal auditing of algorithms. And so when I say like an auditing an algorithm, that means like basically testing it to see how robust it is or testing it to see if it's fair or unfair in certain conditions um, and basically just trying to like break it in certain ways is sometimes another way that you audit a system. And so all these different content creators were running their own audits of the system that were um, basically going around TikTok because TikTok didn't give them any ability to do this on their own. And so they would post the same video as somebody else, like I was saying before, but maybe they look different than somebody else and they were seeing who got more views. Or maybe they would post the same video twice, but with different hashtags and see if they're suppressing certain kinds of hashtags. So people were running their own experiments and basically discovering that from their personal view, it, it appeared that the algorithm was suppressing certain kinds of content. And of course, like the algorithm, like I was saying before, it's not this Terminator algorithm. The algorithm is not like racist or sexist or discriminating intentionally. The algorithm is just doing what it's told. But when you get to these really complex machine learning algorithms that are like layers removed from between the human and the computer, sometimes unexpected things happen. And even though the, the system is performing and functioning just as it was told to function, we don't realize that sometimes the way that we tell it to perform can actually unintentionally turn into this like 
really scary machine that we've unleashed on society and we didn't even realize that we did it. It's sort of, it, it actually is sort of like that from the dystopic robot killing movies. It's the same idea. Like it's doing what we told it to do, but we didn't realize that we accidentally told it to kill us with a loophole. So I mean, TikTok is not going to kill us hopefully, but, but same idea. <laughs> You're listening to Looks Like New, a show that asks old questions about new tech. Stick with us. We'll be back soon. Welcome back to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio. We're having a conversation with Jess Smith about fairness and algorithms. Yeah, so those movies, maybe they weren't lying to us back in the day. You know? <laughs> um, and I, I love that that is something that was kind of because I think TikTok is this great moment, right? Like where it had explosive, you know, viewership, new people joining, like all of these things. It's still kind of bustling. It's like this space that's still very new. And, you know, I think it's it's really interesting that you you bring up that example of what unfairness looks like on that platform and how people are actually catching on. Like they're they're noticing like, hey, this is kind of a problem, you know, like maybe you didn't see this coming, but like this is an issue. And so I'm also wondering like on the other hand, have you encountered some examples of maybe fairness or, you know, we've talked about how difficult fairness can actually be when it's, you know, in function or it's, you know, going about like doing fairness work. So what exactly kind of comes to mind when you think about examples where, the fairness you're committed to is kind of coming through on platforms or maybe just in, you know, Google searches, whatever, um, whatever use. Yeah, this one is, it's a bit harder to answer because I feel like it's easier to recognize that you're being treated unfairly than being treated fairly. Like you hope that if you're being treated fairly, you just don't really notice and things just, you know, business goes on as usual. Um, but I will say a, an interesting case study with fairness in machine learning is um, actually it has to do with COVID and social media and content moderation and knowing what content to um, allow on a platform versus which content is automatically flagged as misinformation or disinformation or propaganda. And um, of course, there's a lot of unfairness that happens with these algorithms as well. A lot of people argue and complain that social media has been suppressing their content and is censoring them. And um, the, I think a lot of well-known large political leaders would argue that social media suppresses and censors them. And um, conversely, on the other side, one of the positive things that I've seen during COVID is that it does seem like the people who's in the groups whose perspectives really do need to get through, like the CDC or WHO or like these um, large organizations that are at least the most trustworthy that we have scientifically, those organizations are being boosted and are being um, 
like basically the opposite of flagged for censorship. Like they're sort of being allowed on these platforms when other people aren't really allowed to discuss the same thing. And they're given a little bit less scrutiny than some of the other, um, like if the CDC posts a study, then the algorithm will be much less likely to take that down than it would if like a random user posts a study that was not like peer reviewed or seen by anybody else on the platform. And maybe it was just fabricated or something. So I do think in some ways, um, fairness interventions, I don't even know if I'd really call these fairness interventions. It's almost just like responsible tech interventions have actually really benefited us at a time when um, we're living in like this post-truth world and we're not really sure what to trust online. And it's, it's difficult for us to know what information is credible or where information comes from. So I do see some like promising interventions happening in, in COVID, the domain of COVID specifically, and, and in a few other domains as well. But as you can see, it's still pretty complicated. It's not like, it, it's not that checkbox where you can just say like, yeah, this algorithm is obviously fair. Like there's always going to be edge cases that treat people unfairly. And it's, it's really hard to catch those if you're not aware of how the algorithm works in the first place. <laughs> Yeah. And it's also, well, you've been talking, I've also been kind of thinking about even just like the differences between, you know, let's just say something like the medical profession where you're kind of sworn to do no harm. And there's this whole like ethical mindset or like expectation. And if you violate that, there's going to be consequences for you and your career and all that. And I think Mm -hmm. it's interesting because, you know, obviously tech is not medicine, right? But like we're seeing this like similar moment maybe where it's like people are starting to think like, what what could that look like if if people were operating with the expectation that they're going to do no harm? You know, how do we, how do we make that happen potentially? How do we, how do we grapple with that? How do we design better, you know? And obviously there, like you said, there's always going to be instances of unfairness. We are flawed humans. We have flawed systems in this world, but <laughs> it was just kind of striking. It kept coming up. I was like, this is interesting. Like the whole like do no harm type of mentality. I wonder, you know, if, if that kind of goes over into this tech space as well and what that could look like. And I don't know if you've encountered anyone who's talked about that or if you've noticed maybe any trends that are kind of shifting in that direction that excite you. But if you wanted to, you know, share anything about that, feel free. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's funny because when you say do no harm, my brain goes to Google's motto, which is, I think it's don't be evil, right? Or something like that. It's like a very, of course, people would have come up with that <laughs> at the beginning of the the Google times of don't be evil. And a lot of people have given them um, a lot of flack for that recently, saying that, you know, Google no longer can say that this is its motto. Like it's done some pretty evil stuff. Um uh, or I guess depending on how you define evil, but it, it it's definitely, I mean, it's, it's interesting because I like to think that a lot of, that the majority of computer scientists and data scientists out there want to do no harm, but sometimes it's not up to them. And even if they are in a perfect situation to do no harm, how do you define harm? Like harm is just as sticky as fairness. I could say like, 
as a human today, I want to do no harm, but maybe I'm with my best friend who's wildly scared of spiders. And in order to do no harm to her, I need to kill the spider that's in the room. But then by killing the spider, I obviously harmed the spider. And so there's like these nuances in when it comes to any of these philosophical concepts where there is no end all be all, there's no one way to do it right. And so it's always up to interpretation. Uh, and in the eye of the beholder, I guess, as, as you might say. <laughs> no, I think that's so important. And I feel like, again, this is just my own interpretation of what's kind of going on. But, you know, you see a lot of a lot of people like, you know, a lot of headlines that are kind of like outlining, oh, you know, we've got whistleblowers coming out from different companies. Like we've got a lot of stuff that's kind of emerging, you know, from from the depths, so to speak. But <laughs> it, it it does make me think like maybe – our conversations need to also acknowledge this complexity, right? Like maybe mm-hmm. maybe our conversations need to have this kind of – not that we all need to, you know, become philosophers, right? But maybe we need to understand like, well, what does harm mean to you? And like – and then if we're expecting to generalize that to, you know, 3 billion users, what does that – look like, right? And it it does become this really fascinating, also kind of scary because the implications are now like pretty, pretty large. Like the stakes are much higher maybe than they were in the 90s, right? But Mm. it does make me think about like, how do we approach the things that are so incredibly, you know, subjective, maybe cultural, all kinds of, you know, different things. But that's what I also am inspired by about your work. And so I wanted to ask you a little bit more about some of the things maybe you're working on right now that you're excited about or things you're thinking about um, and, you know, anything that you wanted to share related to to what you're kind of excited about at the moment. Mm, yeah, no, I love that. It's, re- it's very fascinating having Philosophical discussions, I feel like, you know, I could talk about what ethics is, what fairness is, what harm is for hours and hours on end with with anybody. Um, But then when you apply those kinds of concepts to technology, you can't just talk about it because technology is like practical science. So it's science in practice, used practically in the real world. And that means that inherently you have to make decisions to make it work, to make it run. And you can't just say, okay, the system runs on this philosophical discussion that we've had. The system needs to run on a decision that we made from that philosophical discussion. So that's actually, that's kind of where I'm at in my work right now is finding ways to facilitate those kinds of discussions amongst like data science teams or computer scientists and having them talk to real people instead of just sitting in a room of probably homogenous people in the computer science organization of a big tech company discussing between like six people who are all under an NDA contract saying, okay, this is how we think the system should treat people fairly. This is how we think the system harms people. Instead of it looking like that, maybe opening up the room a little bit and welcoming in all the users of the system from different types of cultures and demographics and diverse groups and asking them, what does it mean for the system? to be fair to you? What does it mean for the system to harm you? How do you want the system to work? What do you need to understand from this system to become algorithmically literate enough to inform us to create a system that actually works well for you instead of harms you? So starting those conversations and then translating those high-level discussions into 
the instructions that we give to the algorithm. So it's it's like a very big, complex pipeline, but it's slowly forming over the last decade or so. People are starting to come up with more frameworks for facilitating these discussions and for incorporating these ideas into algorithms and auditing them and, and uh, intervening on them and testing them. And uh, I'm really I'm hopeful about where this is going because I see a lot of really amazing work happening in this space. And uh, I still have, you know, two and a half years of my PhD left. So we'll see where my research ends up going in this uh, niche little, um, yeah, subdiscipline of research. But that's kind of where my head's at right now is this like translational bridge building work between the people and the computer and finding ways to make sure that things aren't getting as lost in translation and everybody's a part of the conversation. No, I think that's so beautiful because I think that is really what needs to happen. It probably, we could argue it should have happened from the beginning, you know, but again, like moving forward, that's what I always love about just imagining better. Like how do we make systems better? How do we use our tools and make them actually work rather than, you know, making them harmful? Or if we realize Mm. there's a problem, how do we kind of like course correct, right? And I think that identifying tech as practical science, that's like super, I'm going to like have that burned into my memory now, like (laughs) tech as practical science. I just think that's, that's really incredible because it also flips the script on agency, like back to people in a lot of ways, you know, it's not Mm. just some we've, you know, we do this formulaic process, boom, output, you know, there is some sort of practice behind that and we can shape that. And I love that you highlighted that. So I just wanted to say that I, I love that. (laughs) I thought it was so inspiring. I'm just like, oh my gosh. Um, and I know you've kind of alluded to like the idea of, you know, what excites you in the future, but I always ask this question because I really love getting people's perspectives on it, but what excites you, Jess, about the future (laughs) of algorithms and machine learning? Mm, Yes, I did. I thought about this ahead of time um, because I I do have a lot of different thoughts in this realm and I needed to kind of make it a little bit more concise. (laughs) So, I mean, I already alluded to um, the, the fact that there's just so many people doing this work right now and that this is becoming more important to big tech companies, becoming more important to computer scientists, more important to the discipline. Um, that that really excites me a lot. And um, I also love that human-centered computing is becoming uh, a more widely used term, human-centered machine learning, human-centered AI. Unfortunately, it is a bit of a buzzword as of now, so it might um, be adding to some of these problems that we have with jargon and, and gatekeeping. Hopefully, it's, it's not too much of a gatekeepy word, but um, I, it, it really is just this idea that um, in order for a computing system to be human-centered, we as humans need to be able to understand it, and it as a system needs to be able to understand us. So it turns computing technologies from this um, like almost like authoritarian, totalitarian system where it's like the ruler of us to this like very democratic um, republic where we are all a part of the conversation and we're contributing to it and we understand how we are shaping it and we understand how it is consequently shaping us as humans, as individuals, as a society. And um, we're much better off and more well-versed in how algorithms work, which gives us this ability to, to 
create the future that we want to create with these algorithms instead of feeling like it's running our lives in these Terminator-esque scenarios. <laughs> no, I, I think that's so beautiful. And I would ask, you know, about the challenges, but I, I think we have highlighted the complexities of all of it really just it is going to continue to be, I think, a very complicated space moving forward. But I love that, you know, all the things you're excited about and all the conversations that are going to start happening and the ways that we're going to, again, find ourselves, you know, in front of our devices and not beholden to them, but understanding that like mutual relationship we have. I think that's like super important. And so I love kind of ending on that that similar note. Um, and I wanted to say thank you again for coming on here, for sharing all of your incredible work. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was really great. You've been listening to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio, a show that asks old questions about new tech. We've been speaking with Jess Smith. If you'd like to find out more about her work and her podcast, you can learn more at jessiejsmith.com backslash. I'm Bailey Troutman, today's host of Looks Like New, a production of CU's Media Enterprise Design Lab. You can find out more about our work at colorado.edu slash lab slash medlab. If you liked what you heard, please spread the word about this show and consider leaving a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Leaving positive reviews will help our conversations reach more listeners. We would love to hear your comments or guest ideas. You can reach us by emailing medlab at colorado.edu. I hope you'll join us for another conversation next month.